Blog Talk Radio. You are listening to Help for HD Live, the first podcast created for families living with Huntington's and juvenile Huntington's disease. Don't forget to find us on iTunes, Blog Talk, Spotify, and iHeartRadio. You can also search over 500 archived episodes and other projects at helpforhd.org. To watch us in person, find Help for HD TV on YouTube and subscribe and ring the bell for notifications on new content. Help for HD Live is going on air in 5, 4, 3, 2, Hello, everyone, and thanks so much for tuning in to Help for HD Live. This show is made possible because of a grant from Teva Pharmaceuticals and the Huntington Study Group. I'm your host, Lauren Holder, and today we have Michael Flower on with us to talk about FAN1, um, which is a genetic modifier um, of Huntington's disease, um, as we discussed in a previous show about genetic modifiers um, that, you know, there are several. So there, there are two that we were focusing on this month, and FAN1 is one of them. So Michael is a neuro- neurology registrar at the National Hospital for Neurology and Neurosurgery in London and works in clinical trials and genetic diseases. He graduated from Cambridge in 2009 and completed a PhD in neurogenetics at UCL in 2018. His research with Professor Sarah Tabrizi uses stem cells and cutting edge genetics to understand neurological diseases and create new treatments. His focus is on repeat expansion diseases such as Huntington's disease and the role of DNA repair and repeat instability. Michael, thank you so much for joining me today. Uh-huh. Nice to meet you. Very nice to meet you. We're doing this on Zoom, so we actually get to see you. <laughs> um, so I'm going to start off with my favorite question to any researcher, any professional in the field. Why did you choose these? Why, why HD? Why did you choose this direction? I always knew I wanted to do neurology from a young age, so I did neuroscience at school. And then I did medicine, always knowing I was going into neurology. And then fairly early in my neurology training, I had the opportunity to work in a Huntington's disease clinic with Sarah Tabrizi, who I imagine the community are, are quite a lot in the community are familiar with. <clears throat> and I worked in her clinic and I saw a lot of Huntington's disease patients. Um, and I asked if I could do a research project with her because it seemed a huge unmet need. There were a lot of people, there were no treatments and it's a very well understood disease, unlike a lot of other genetic conditions. It's a, what we call a clean phenotype. So everyone who has Huntington's disease has Huntington's disease due to a very, the, the same cause. And that to experiment on and to try and work out is it's the perfect sort of model to work on. So there really is potential for make, doing good here and developing and coming up with a cure or coming up with a, a treatment. So I think I saw potential in terms of developing treatments uh, and a really exciting group leader to supervise my PhD in Sarah Tabrizi, who straddled both doing clinical work and doing research, which is both the things that I really wanted to get into and a disease that was treatable. And I worked and developed DNA repair expertise through her lab and now we sort of one of the groups leading the way in trying to turn all of this very recent knowledge from huge genetic studies 
into treatments and actually there's been a huge i mean when you think about it the genome-wide study came out only the first one was only five or six years ago and we've already had started we've got clinical trials starting later this year it's incredibly rapid and we're right at the cutting edge of that which is really exciting and hopefully we can translate this into an effective treatment in not too long well, we certainly hope that you do as well in the huntington's community um you know that is that is why we um we try to participate as much as we can um and today we're going to be talking about fan one which is a genetic modifier it's another gene right that affects huntington's disease can you tell me what this gene does yeah absolutely well in detail we're still trying to work that out but i can give you the overview version it's probably worth just laying a few very basic uh, building blocks. So FAN1 came out of a study in 2015-ish, which is called a genome-wide association study, which is essentially where you take thousands and thousands of people with Huntington's disease, and you predict when their disease should start, when their symptoms should start, at what age. And then you look at the people whose disease started a bit too late or later than we expected or a bit too early, earlier than we expected. And you say, what's odd, what's special about these people? That means that the disease is starting early or late. And what we found is the biggest thing, the biggest genetic thing that causes someone's disease to start early or late is if they've got small genetic changes in FAN1 that either makes it work more or work less. And what we found was that the people who had mutations or genetic changes in FAN1 that makes it less active, they were having earlier disease onset. Their Huntington's was more aggressive. And the people who had mutations that made it uh, more, uh, more active, uh, so really good, really strong FAN1, well, their disease was starting much later. And we're talking six, seven years later, and it's not a small effect. Um, and this was very exciting for several reasons. The first is it shows that you can do something to Huntington's disease. It shows, in theory, you can slow the disease down. It's proof genetically, which is very exciting. Um, we had to work out what it is about FAN1 that's doing it and whether we can harness that for a drug. The first thing was to try and work out what FAN1 was. Uh, so FAN1 um, is something called a nuclease. So what a nuclease is, is it binds to the DNA and cuts it. And there's lots of different kinds of nucleases depending on what you want them for. Most of the time they're involved in repairing DNA. Now, all of our DNA, we think of it as just sort of being sat there and as a, as a blueprint that produces all of us. It's why you, uh, look and sound different to me and boys are different from girls and everything like that and our hair color and our eyes that's all genetics but actually your dna is being used it's being opened up it's being copied constantly uh, to make new cells it's being exposed to uv radiation from the sun it's being damaged and you need a system that constantly repairs all of that damage and fan one is part of that um, it repairs something called crosslinks in DNA, which is where normally the DNA is made up of two strands and where those two strands get bound together 
um, then FAN1 is involved in removing that abnormal binding, the interstrand crosslink. FAN1 is involved in removing that and then allowing DNA to return to its normal structure. And FAN1 was actually only discovered in 2010. We don't really actually know very much about it. And that's partly what our work has been. How is FAN1 protecting against Huntington's disease? And that's sort of what we've identified very recently. It turns out that FAN1 is binding to and repairing more accurately the repeats in Huntington's disease. So Huntington's disease is made up of CAG repeats repeated over and over and over again. And what we think is happening is that these CAG repeats are doing weird things in the, in the, the Huntington gene and they're causing it to form hairpins and loop outs. Normally DNA should be straight, but where you have a CAG repeated over and over again, the DNA kinks. And lots of the DNA repair machinery mistakes those kinks. It tries to fix it. And in trying to fix it, it causes it to get bigger and bigger and bigger. And it gets bigger and bigger and bigger as you get older. And until it eventually it gets to a size big enough to cause the cells to not work very well. That's what most DNA repair factors are doing. The difference is that FAN1 sees those kinks and repairs them accurately. So it means that you maintain a normal repeat length. It doesn't get bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger over the years. And ultimately it prevents people or slows down people's disease. What we're trying to do is harness that. So we're trying to make therapeutics that do what FAN1 does. So it prevents, so it, it repairs those kinks in the DNA accurately, not like the rest of DNA repair does. And in doing so, we hope that we can at least slow down Huntington's disease. So tantalizingly, if you can completely stop the repeat from getting bigger, there is that potential for completely stopping Huntington's disease if you give it early enough. Well, that's a key right there. If you give it early enough, um, you know, right now there's nothing that that looks at anything in um, pre-manifest, correct, and something like that. It's all considered symptomatic diagnosis. Um, so that's a big area of focus. So that's the whole community is shifting towards trying. So we're recruiting and then lots of other centers are, re are recruiting people who are either er very early manifest or are pre-manifest. And ideally what we want to try and do is give some of these medications to people who are pre-manifest or very early manifest and trying to intervene early. Because that's one of the theories as to why we had very disappointing trial results recently is perhaps we were giving the medications too late after a lot of the damage had been done. But what happens if we can get them in early and prevent these things from happening? Because Absolutely. the treatments we're designing now are working right at the heart of what's causing Huntington's disease. And part of the problem why none of our treatments have worked until now is because Huntington's causes so many problems downstream. It affects so many problems in the cells and in the brain and in the way cells work, that even if you make a drug that is successfully makes, for example, your mitochondria, the energy producing factories in your cells, even if you make a drug that makes them work well, you're not actually doing anything about all of the other problems in the cell, like transporting things around the cell, for example. So 
that was one reason we think that none of the treatments have worked to date. But what we're now designing, uh, we're designing drugs that are going right to the heart. They're actually tackling the mutation itself. And that's why we have great hopes that we can really change it in the future. So what do you think as far as a time frame? you know, obviously we hear five years is, is a very fast pace for those of us in the HD community waiting for, you know, a treatment. Um, certainly five years seems like a long time, but why does it take that long? And, and do you think that you guys are on track for a timeline with something like this? So I think inevitably there is a timeline, which is obviously incredibly painful if you are sitting there and watching all of this develop and knowing that you have inherited or your loved one has inherited a disease mutation or you've already got manifest disease and it's incredibly painful. The community is working incredibly hard at trying to develop these drugs and turn all of these findings into treatments. We do obviously have to be extremely careful. So the DNA repair in particular it's a little bit like playing with knives. So a lot of these DNA repair factors, if they're manipulated wrong, can cause problems in the DNA. Um, and they've been implicated in things like cancers, for example. So we're being extremely careful with, with changing these things and manipulating these things. But inevitably, regardless of all of that, it does take time, A, to test your new treatments in cells, then to test them potentially in animal or other models, and then to get put together a clinical trial with enough people in it and organize it and run it and then follow up people for long enough to be able to show that your treatment works and that those people haven't had any problematic side effects. And then in order to get your treatment licensed for use around the world. And regardless with the best will in the world that takes several years from idea to delivery. But there are a lot of people working very hard at speeding up that process. And that's been shown. So for example, the treatments coming out later this year, which are DNA repair treatments. So there are antisense oligonucleotides, and these are similar to the Tommy Nursen trial that came out recently. These are things that you inject into people's, around their cerebrospinal fluid or into the brain. And then they reduce the amount in Tominosin, it was reducing the amount of Huntington, but what the trial that's coming out later this year is reducing something called MSH3. And that is starting in 2021. And we only discovered MSH3 as a modifier in 2016, 17. Um, so that's, that's pretty fast actually. That, and that's four years, and that's for a medication that's had to go through preclinical trials in cells and animal models, and now is going into people. And MSH3 is something that we had to be really careful with because there is that association with cancer with some of the DNA repair factors, not MSH3. So that is an example of sort of a, a higher risk strategy that has come through really quite quickly. So I think that these timelines are being cut. So there is hope there, but I think you probably agree we need we do need to be really careful with doing these sorts of things. 
A, because we want it to succeed. We don't want it to fall down because if you do have things that fail, then it makes it much harder to get this class of drug right through if you have successive failures. So we're 100% focused on making new treatments that are gonna really dent and do something to slow down or stop this disease. And we're just 100% committed to making sure it gets through and gets to patients. And this is working as fast and as safely as we can. Um, so let me ask you, I think that's amazing by the way, let me um, thank you for that. Cause that's very helpful to know steps and, and uh, you know, being careful is important. We certainly don't wanna cause another issue. Um, one of the things that you mentioned though, and this is actually something that was mentioned on our other show too, is that um, your CAG does not stay the same. So no, it, it, it actually goes up. Yeah, so this is one of the key things and this is one of the really important things and one of the hard things sort of to get your head around. We've actually known about this phenomenon for years. Um, people have been studying it for 20 years or so in various diseases but it really has gained traction as a really important mechanism that's causing Huntington's disease since these big genetic studies in 2015. And that really put it right at front and center in Huntington's disease. So everyone with Huntington's disease inherits a CAG in their Huntington gene that is at least 36 CAGs long. If you have less than 36, you won't get Huntington's disease. If you have 36 to 40, you might, because there's a little bit of a gray area there. And if you have 40 or more, eventually if you live, old, live long enough, you will get Huntington's disease. And the longer the repeat that you inherit, the earlier your Huntington's disease will start and the slightly faster it will progress. So someone who has a hundred repeats their disease will start in, much earlier, probably in their teens uh, or earlier, whereas someone with 40 repeats, their disease would start much later, maybe in their 40s. And what we've discovered is that actually the repeat isn't stable. As you get older, if you inherit 40 repeats, as you get older, the repeat gradually ticks up 41, 42, up to 50, up to 60 or so and higher. The reason we missed that, the reason we didn't see it uh, until sort of 20 or so years ago is because it ticks up at a different speed in different bits of your body. And in your blood, which is where we measure, it doesn't change at all over the years. So I could measure someone with Huntington's CAG repeat length at 20 in their blood and then measure it at 80 and it'll be exactly the same pretty much. But, in the bits of the body that Huntington's disease affects, like in the brain, specifically in the striatum or in the cortex, which is around the outside of the brain, the repeats get big and quite a lot bigger. So there have been some studies that show that someone who's inherited 40 or so repeats from their parents, actually, by the time they've died, and actually some studies have showed that even before their disease has started, they have over a thousand repeats in their brain. And what we think and what we've shown uh, in our group and a few other groups have as well, 
the faster your repeat is getting bigger, so the, the, the expansion rate, the higher the expansion rate and the faster that repeat is ticking up in size, the earlier your disease starts. And what's really interesting is the thing that makes your repeat tick up faster and faster is DNA repair. And what came out of that genetic modifier study of thousands of patients we were talking about earlier, the signal is all about DNA repair. And that is why we're all focusing our attention on making DNA repair drugs now. Because what we want to do is if we can have a DNA repair drug, for example, one that lowers or reduces the amount of the bad DNA repair factors like MSH3, or one that increases the good DNA repair factors like FAN1, then what we can do is we can slow that ticking up in size of the repeat length in your brain, and we can stop those brain cells from suffering and dying. And, it, and if we can get in there early, before the repeat length is ticked up to the size that causes the brain cells to be unhappy, then we can slow down or potentially stop Huntington's. And that's what we're all aiming to do. That is absolutely um, amazing, you know, to think that in the brain, your repeats are so much higher and uh, uh, a little scary. It's a little terrifying, um, but very interesting too. Um, but it also really makes me think about, you know, one of the things that myself and others in the HD community are trying to do, and that is, to get an earlier diagnosis of HD in order to be able to participate in stuff um, before, you know, where you would be considered pre-manifest or very early, um, it would actually be a diagnosis of HD so you can participate. Um, so this right here is just a very good indication that that needs to happen. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So We've always thought it's been different historically in genetic conditions and in Huntington's disease where there hasn't been a treatment uh, or the hope for a, a, a treatment available. So the incentive to diagnose someone and go through genetic counselling with all of the psychological issues that can go alongside uh, receiving a diagnosis of Huntington's disease and we've, we've encouraged people to wait until they're ready uh, to deal with that because uh, there hasn't been a treatment available. And at the moment there still isn't, but we're hoping that might change soon. And there are things on the horizon. So genetic counselors around the world will have to take this into consideration. And it is useful uh, to bear in mind at the moment, our official advice I don't think would necessarily change, but there are people, including our group uh, and others around the world, who, are, who do need to put together cohorts of people who are pre-manifest um, uh, 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 or early manifest uh, and uh, in order to study uh, what pre-manifest disease looks like. And we have a fair idea from some studies, but for example, the HD-YAS study uh, is, starting, is trying to look at working that out in more detail, what a normal trajectory looks like, because traditionally we've always studied people who have or whose disease has already started. So focus really needs to turn on to what does normal pre-manifest disease look like and how does it change over the years so that we 
when we do give a drug early, we can actually measure a difference because we know what should happen. So we know what, what we know whether we're, we're changing it. That said, it's also very it's important that people are, do, are getting their genetic tests when it's right for them and that they're not they're in, they're in the right place psychologically to be able to deal with that and they're, and they're, and they're consulting their doctors uh, and genetic counselors about when is right for them. Um, so I, don't, I want to be very cautious about making sure people don't feel that they uh, owe a duty to get the test early. Uh, they need to make sure that they're doing it when it's right for them. Yes, absolutely. It is a very personal choice. And, um, you know, thank you for saying that. Uh, I love, though, that that you mentioned that we've got to get a cohort of people together in order to get to that point of, of pre-manifest studies and um, then pre-manifest trials, you know, and that is part of us working together and um, to get to, to that point. Us as the HD community needs to be willing to step up obviously you know that i'm not saying somebody should go get a test because of that um because i've gone through testing so i would never ever tell somebody to go through it if they didn't feel it was right for them but i do think that those of us who have chosen to get tested and those of us who um who are pre-manifest and who are wanting to get involved absolutely need to come together to help the research side to be able to get those cohorts together and do the research we absolutely need. And we're extremely grateful for everyone who volunteers. And this work is actively ongoing with a view to setting up these clinical trials. So we're fully aware we need cohorts of people who are, uh, are pre-manifest and early manifest in order A, to study what it normally looks like in terms of progression from brain imaging, from uh, movement studies from psychology and cognitive function uh, right through and then B in order to have a group of people that we can ask whether they want to participate in trials like this um, and that is work that is being very actively pursued and there are several trials ongoing uh, several observational studies ongoing uh, recruiting people exactly like that uh, to look at how they change and also how the CAG repeat changes in various uh, tissues that we can easily access. I mean, obviously not people's brain, um, but there are tissues that you can measure the repeat length in, so blood and cerebrospinal fluid, for example, and several other things. So, so would cerebrospinal fluid actually be closer to what your actual count would be in, in your brain? Yeah, so... Well, this is all theory and this is something that we're trying to work on actively. So, as I said before, blood is great, but your repeat length in blood doesn't change because I mean, Huntington's isn't something that particularly affects your bone marrow or your blood cells, as far as we can tell. Um, and that's probably because the repeat is relatively stable in them. Um, the ideal tissue to study the CAG repeat length would obviously be someone's striatum or cortex, but that's not something you can access without causing significant damage. That's obviously not something we want to do. So we need to think of surrogate measures. And there are several tissues in the body that show a lot of repeat expansion. The liver does. That's one potential, but it's quite invasive to be able to try and measure, but it is possible particularly in animal models. So mice, you can measure that quite easily. Um, muscle tissue, there's a potential. There's not a great deal, but there's a bit more than in blood. 
but cerebrospinal fluid is one that we hold great hope for. So for people who aren't familiar with cerebrospinal fluid, your brain and your spine are floating in fluid that is produced uh, by your uh, by your brain in order to bathe it, uh, support it. Um, and what it does is it, it washes around the around your brain and the deep structures in your brain and it goes down your spine. And actually your spinal cord itself ends about halfway down your back. But that fluid, the cerebrospinal fluid, carries on all the way down to the bottom. And what we can do is we can put a needle in to the bottom of the spine, but below the spinal cord, so there's no risk of damaging any important structures. And we can take a small sample of that fluid, and that's actually how the drug tominersin was delivered, because we put a needle into the lower back and took a little bit of fluid off and then squirted in the drug. And then that moves up around the brain. But anyway, we can access that and we can take repeated samples. So we could do one, one year and then the next year come back and take another sample and the next year come back and take another sample. And we know that in that cerebrospinal fluid, there are some cells, there are some brain cells, and there's things from brain cells, like bits of DNA and bits of RNA. And it's DNA that we're interested in. So some of that DNA that we can that we measure in the cerebrospinal fluid has come from your brain. And we can look at the repeat length in that. And at the moment, we're trying to work up, we're, we're currently trying to work up how much CSF we need and also how much of that DNA has come from the brain and how much has come from elsewhere. Um, but there's a, there's a big need for what we call biomarkers. So, that, so this is an example of a biomarker, measuring your CAG repeat length in something that's a surrogate for your brain. And this is a huge, huge gap in our knowledge or a gap in our armory that we're really working on trying to fill. Because what you really want for a trial like a trial of something like MSH3 or a FAN1 drug. What we really want is we need to firstly measure that the drug is doing something to MSH3 or FAN1, which means we need to measure the levels of MSH3 or FAN1 in the brain or in the cerebrospinal fluid. We can do that already, so that's good. But then we need to measure, we need to show that the drug is having an effect. Now you can show that the drug is having an effect on people's thinking, on people's, uh, uh, on people's mood, on people's movements, um, and on people's brain structure with MRIs. And that's great and we can do that, but all of those changes take years to develop, which is why clinical trials need to run for two years or so, to be able to measure a, an appreciable difference and show that your drug is actually doing something good. But what if we had a measure of the repeat length and we could show that if we were giving an MSH3 drug or a FAN1 drug and actually we completely stopped or at least we slowed down that repeat getting bigger, then we have great hope that in time, we're also gonna be able to measure a slowing down or a stopping in the worsening of someone's movement problems and their cognition and their brain sizes on their MRIs. But what we really want is a measure like that. So we need to go from, we'll have the full spectrum of biomarkers then. We would, we would give a drug, we would measure MSH3 or FAN1 levels in someone's cerebrospinal fluid. We would measure the repeat length in cerebrospinal fluid uh, and show that it 
it's not getting bigger. And then over time, we would be able to measure that people's thinking and movements and everything have been stable. Um, and that's really what we're aiming for. And that's, that's when we'll know we've got a drug that works. This is all so fascinating to me. Um, I'm like hanging on to every word because I, I just find it all um, very fascinating. Um, thank you so much for sharing this information and breaking it down for us. And um, thanks for coming on and, and uh, thanks for what you're doing in research and trying to help us get to where we need to be. It's a pleasure. Thank you very much for inviting me. And for anybody that is listening, I hope that you will tune in next week, because as we were talking about this and how, um, you know, pre-manifest is really the way to go um, when it comes to, um, to these treatments and being able to study stuff, uh, BJ View and Seth Rotberg and I are going to be talking next week about an army an HD army, basically, and you know, how do we get? As you were talking about the cohort of people to uh, a pre-manifest or early manifest, very early manifest, to get involved um, to help with this with this need, um, because there is a sense of urgency uh, for for those of us who are not far from <laughs> from being symptomatic, and um, so. Seth and BJ and I are going to be on next week talking about this, talking about our thoughts in regards to, um, you know, how do we, how do we get to a different point, not stay down the same path of urgency and feeling like we're not getting to where we need to be. Um, but Michael, I think you did a great job of showing us that even though we feel that way, it is actually moving quite a bit faster than it ever did. Um, so even though it, it feels like forever for, <laughs> for one of us, um, it in on your side of things, it's, it's very fast compared to what it's always been. So remembering that um, I think is key and realizing that you guys are trying to work on it too. Um, and I think this was just perfect to be able to go into next week's show and talk about having an HD army and how we can, we in the HD community can really step up on our side of things to help make it move even faster. So thank you again for joining me. Thank you for inviting me. Um, I think the, uh, the whole area of Huntington's disease is really leading the way in terms of what we've learned uh, from the recent studies and our hope uh, with the potential targets that we've discovered. Um, so we're really hoping and we're working as hard as we can. Thank you again. Um, I'm going to let you go and we'll end here and everybody take care. Thank you for listening. Don't forget to visit www.helpforhd.org and sign up for our email newsletter to stay up to date on all that is going on at Help for HD. Get social with us and like us on Facebook. Follow us on Instagram and subscribe to Help for HD TV on YouTube and ring the bell for notifications.
Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, Revoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.